History This Week. I'm Sally Helm. On January 6th, 2021, a mob attacked the U.S. Capitol. This would be the first time since 1814 that the headquarters of our government was breached on this scale. So this week, we bring you something a little different, a special episode to give us a historical perspective on current events. U.S. Capitol overrun, under siege. Chaos, violence, lawmakers under lockdown. A riot was declared. Tonight, stunning images never as rioters supporting President Trump overrun the like Capitol. I call on President Trump to demand an end to this siege. We've heard some people bring up the 25th Amendment. Officially, a declaration of violence. What's supposed to be the voting to impeach the President of the United States for the second time in a little more than a year? The past couple weeks have felt kind of crazy. It feels like we are living through unprecedented times, really. And so we at the show at History This Week have decided to sit down with three historians who can give us some context for what we're living through right now by looking to history. So today with us, we have Steve Gillen, who is a scholar in residence at the History Channel and professor of modern U.S. history at the University of Oklahoma. Hello, Steve. Welcome. Thanks. Nice to be with you. We also have Sharon Conrad, who is postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Sharon, hi. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. And finally, we have Beverly Gage, who is professor of history and American studies at Yale University. Hi, Beverly. Hi. So before we really hop in, I just want to ask, um, how are you guys doing in this moment? Have your phones just been ringing off the hook with people asking you to help us understand what's what's going on in the world? To some extent, you know, I think there are limits to how much guidance history can provide us in a moment like this. I just don't know if there are any, I don't believe that lesson that history teaches any clear, compelling lessons to apply to today. I think it can provide some perspective. I, like most everyone else, am just sitting here uh, just trying to make sense of it all. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Steve. As a historian, I almost never use the word unprecedented, but this time it really does seem to apply. Uh, and so uh, it's it's interesting to be in this moment of deep uncertainty when it seems like history is some guide, but is somewhat of a limited guide. And then again, as a historian, I also have a sense of, I wouldn't say um, excitement about this, but deep interest, right? <laughs> I spend all of my time sort of thinking about this American story that's been unfolding for centuries. And I am both disturbed by a lot of what's been happening and intensely curious to find out what the next chapter of this story is going to be. Sharon? And I have to agree with those comments. I find myself watching and observing and paying attention to the news with kind of two hats. Uh, on the one hand, I am, you know, observing as a historian and making connections to things that have happened throughout our nation's history. And on the other, I'm just a citizen watching these events unfold. And so it's, um, it is very disconcerting to be honest, um, to observe what's happening, but then also to be called upon to reflect on it and to say something kind of um, wise and smart about it when it's changing every single moment. So it's, it's a, uh, I'm sure like all of your listeners, it's just a deeply dis- disconcerting moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's great to begin this conversation with thinking about 
the fact that history is a limited guide that we may actually be approaching times that we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We, we don't know how things will unfold. And, you know, so in, in hearing the news, the historical moment that people seem to be referencing a lot, actually, I've been hearing people reference the 1800s quite a lot, talking about 1814 was the last time that the Capitol building was breached during the War of 1812, when, when British soldiers breached the Capitol building, and talking about the fact that Andrew Johnson was actually the last president who did not attend the inauguration of his successor, Ulysses S. Grant. And that was a time soon after the Civil War, the country was in turmoil, economic turmoil, racial turmoil. And I want to open it up to you all. What what parallels do you see between that moment, that that election perhaps of of uh, Grant and and this one? So it's, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that a president must participate in the inaugural festivities. And actually, uh, Johnson, I think, was the fourth president not to participate um, in uh, the inauguration of their successor. And Grant and Johnson just hated each other. Um, Grant was the one who said he refused to ride in the same carriage as Johnson. Um, and then Johnson got angry at that. And he said, well, I'm not going to participate at all. But we're talking about more uh, personal animosity than we are about a incumbent president using the powers of office to try to overturn an election, which is what we're looking at today. So the, the fact that Trump is not going to attend Biden's um, uh, inauguration is the least of our problems today. Hmm. Well, yeah, let's broaden it a bit to talk about the idea of a peaceful transfer of power um, in, in the United States. I mean, what are moments that you all are thinking about, you know, 1800s or beyond as sort of historical touchstones that we should, we should have in mind as we think about the idea of a peaceful transfer of power and sort of the importance of presidential leadership in ensuring that that happens? Beverly? I think it's worth noting that one of the alarming features of what, the question that you asked initially is that most of those precedents are looking back to moments of war. <laughs> and so the capital was uh, sacked in the War of 1812. And then I think the period of the 1860s and 1870s, which is a period that people have been looking to for lots of reasons in this moment, was, of course, when the country was literally in and then uh, attempting to recover from a civil war. So just as an indication of uh, at least the depth of emotion and animosity that many people think that we're experiencing right now, um, the fact that those are the precedents people seem to be turning to is notable in itself. Uh, but it's also worth noting that even in 1860, right, even when the South seceded, this is the moment that uh, Abraham Lincoln is elected and the South secedes, the beginning of the Civil War, nobody said, Lincoln, you weren't you weren't actually elected. We don't buy this election. And so I think that also underscores um, they didn't like the outcome of the election, uh, but it wasn't contested or undermined in uh, in the way that 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 we're seeing now. And uh, I think that's a that's a worthy precedent to look to as well. Well, in my own research and work is in the 20th century. And, and specifically, I focus in on um, the presidencies of John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. And I personally look to the election of 1960 when I look for parallels, um, mostly because, you know, that was one of the closest elections in our nation's history. And interestingly enough, uh, Richard Nixon was uh, the Republican candidate for president. 
and lost, obviously, that year, but that he was in a similar role to what Mike Pence uh, was in this year, in the sense um, of being in a position to conceivably contradict the votes of the American people. And yet, I think one of the things that makes this moment just so chilling for many of us is that, of course, that didn't happen, because we do have a long history and precedent of the vice president, the sitting vice president, fulfilling their duty in um, counting the electoral votes or being on hand for that. And, and you know, I think that one of the things that makes this moment just, um, you know, particularly you know, historic, I guess, is just that that norm has fallen by the wayside, not in that Mike Pence um, didn't fulfill his obligation, thank goodness he did. Um, But just that, you know, that obligation was called into question. So I, that's an election I look to, we could also look to the election of 2000 with Al Gore being in a similar uh, position as well. And again, never, it never crossed anyone's mind that he wouldn't fulfill that obligation. I was just going to say that there have been very close elections in American history. 1960 was one of them, and there have been many others, 2000, obviously. This was not a close election. When Trump tells lies, he tells big lies. He didn't just win the election. He wanted a landslide. (laughs) It's a sort of a sad commentary on our times that Trump has been able to perpetuate these lies that they've been able to circulate in the conservative uh, media ecosystem and that he has champions uh, in Congress and other places who are willing to carry his water. And I, that, that is what's never happened. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to, uh, to other, uh, my other historian guests have another perspective on this, but I just can't think of another parallel where a president mm-hmm. took the results of an election, which they clearly lost and refused to see power. I think that's right, that that is what is really unique about this moment, um, is uh, the scale of the lie, um, the scale of the intransigence. There have been other moments in which various political figures have told lies or who have uh, fomented conspiracy theories. You might think about someone like Joe McCarthy, but of course he wasn't the president of the United States and he wasn't doing it uh, in response to a pretty clear um, and unequivocal electoral outcome. You know, when I think about the the 1960s, to go back to Sharon's point and to to that moment, um, I think of it not only for that 1960 election, but also for the 1964 election, which was Goldwater and Johnson and. I look to that because I think in many ways, historians understand that election to be the beginning of a really important shift in the Republican Party uh, that continued for many decades, a kind of radicalization of the Republican Party, uh, a new set of ideological divisions that uh, have set in between the Democratic and the Republican Party over the last half century. Um, and within the Republican Party, that has accelerated in lots of ways. You know, we look to the moment uh, of the 1990s with the first big government shutdowns and kind of a move to a more obstructionist stance on the part of the Republican Party. And I don't know that... Um, Many of the participants in those earlier moments uh, saw what was coming. I think they did not. And in fact, many of those folks have now 
uh, turned against Trump. But I do think that that story of uh, the kind of radicalization of the Republican Party in particular and the ideological division of the two parties um, has helped to bring us where we are at a moment when a figure like Trump uh, can kind of come in from the outside, uh, take over and mobilize uh, the Republican Party in many ways to uh, to a pretty extreme agenda. Yeah, I think Bev is absolutely right. And there's so many key moments in this radicalization of the party. And, and it's, you know, Goldwater brings in a whole new group of people. But I think we also have to go back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You know, before 1965, we really had four political parties in the United States. We had liberal Republicans and liberal Democrats, and they came together to pass most of the progressive legislation that we think of in the 1960s. Then you had conservative Democrats uh, in the South, and you had conservative Republicans in the mountain states. What happens is once the Democratic Party aligns itself with the cause of civil rights, those Southern Democrats, the most conservative wing of the Democratic Party, move into the Republican Party. They do so in the presidential level in 1980 with Ronald Reagan, and they do so in 1994 with the so-called Gingrich Revolution in 1994, and, and a whole series of other things separate from that, you know, the way campaigns are run, the opening up of the primary systems, campaign finance reform, all these things have had less of an impact on the Democratic Party, which still nominates fairly moderate candidates. But this right wing that has been, uh, who's, has sort of fanned the flames of dissent, uh, in America has really captured hold of the Republican party. It goes back to Gingrich, the Tea Party. And that's how, that's, so yes, Trump is the villain in all this, but Trump didn't come out of anywhere. He grew out of a series of historical changes that took place over the past 50 years that allowed him to, uh, emerge as the powerful figure that he is today. I would, was only going to say, even though because of my own interest in the 60s, I'm the one that kind of brought us into conversation around um, 1960. You know, I think that there's something to be said for when you hear a, people mention the fact that, you know, this isn't who we are. It makes me wonder if that is indeed true in some sense. Um, certainly the breaking of precedent is mind-boggling and very, very different. But when we look back to the early part of the 20th century, and I guess it's even the late part of the 19th century, the question of, of voter suppression and um, questions of fraud um, in elections, particularly in the South, really, I think, uh, is, is important um, to this discussion. Um, there were people during Reconstruction and throughout the Jim Crow era who continuously and relentlessly suppressed the votes of African Americans. And so I do see some connection and some parallel in that, in just the sense that when people in our nation's history have felt as though, you know, things were changing or things were um, perhaps uh, when rights of people of color and, and voting rights were perhaps going too far in their opinions, the use of force, the use of violence to suppress that vote and to suppress those rights is kind of a continuing theme throughout our nation's history. And so I do 
you know, just think about that myself um, when I think about the question of, you know, well, this isn't who we are. This isn't what we do. In some senses, it is what we are and it is what we do. And I, until we really are ready to grapple with the reality of that, I think we're going to continue to see this play out. Yeah, that actually brings me into sort of the next area that I wanted to ask about, because we have been in sort of the electoral realm, the realm of different elections that have been contested, how have, has the Congress responded, etc. But I do want to ask about this thing that, you, that you're bringing up, Sharon, the threat of violent extremism and particularly white supremacist violence that obviously is something that is deeply entrenched in in our nation's past um, and, and its present. And I guess I want to ask, what historical threads of violence do you see popping up again here as sort of a parallel? And in what ways do you think that this moment might be different? Or what are things that we're seeing now that strike you as new or taking us off in a new direction? I think Americans love to forget just how violent our country's history is and has been, and as we see, in many ways continues to be. Um, there's, of course, the great precedent of the civil war itself. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I think more importantly, in many ways, you know, the history of racial violence in this country, um, particularly around lynching, which was often uh, an organized spectacle for entire communities, right? Not something that was particularly hidden, but was in fact uh, reasonably organized, sometimes with hundreds or thousands of people uh, showing up to participate and to watch. Uh, that deep history has yet to be contended with. Um, and we actually do have a history of various groups attacking the Capitol in particular. So during the First World War, uh, there was a bombing at the Senate um, in protest of the war. Uh, the weather underground also set off bombs at the Capitol uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, in the 50s, Puerto Rican nationalists stormed the Congress in order to promote their views about Puerto Rico's liberation. Um, so we have had these moments of violent conflict, both uh, in an incredibly entrenched and long-term way, and then, you know, episodes of violence, uh, often terrorist violence, um, probably the most dramatic uh, moment of anti-government violence that we can remember in our lifetimes was, of course, the Oklahoma City bombing in the mid-1990s. Um, but I think, nonetheless, that this is still a little bit different, both because of the way it's situated uh, in the electoral story, that it's really very deliberately aimed at uh, an attempt to overthrow an, a legitimate election, um, because of the kind of mass and open nature of it, and because of the fact that it's actually being aided, abetted, and fomented by the person who's sitting in the White House. I agree with Bev that we obviously have a rich history of violence uh, in the United States, and the Capitol has not been immune to that. What really makes this stand out, and and you know we're using this word unprecedented uh, so many times, but we have a sitting president who controls the apparatus of government, who is using his powers to try to undermine a democratic election, and has instigated a insurrection to try to prevent the uh, winning candidate from becoming president. That's has never happened before, to my knowledge. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It, it really is interesting how often we're using the word unprecedented to talk about this. I'm going to ask a bit more about that at the at the end of the interview. I have a few specific things I wanted to get to that are maybe a bit on a different theme. One is just the fact that we've been hearing talk of the 25th Amendment in this moment, which is something that I hadn't really been thinking much about. I forgot what the 25th Amendment was. Can you just remind our listeners, what is the 25th Amendment? Where did it come from? And why are people talking about it in this moment? Well, the 25th Amendment really came into play because the practices regarding when the vice president becomes president had been somewhat murky. It hadn't been very spelled out, and it certainly came into play with uh, the assassination of John Kennedy and uh, the kind of rise of Johnson as the vice president. This question of when does the vice president actually become president? Uh, is that something that happens automatically or, you know, is there some lag time, etc.? And so the 25th Amendment essentially makes it so that uh, the vice president automatically becomes president following the death of the sitting president or his resignation. And it also deals with a number of other things related to presidential succession, whether or not the president can nominate someone else to be the vice president, should there be a vacancy? And it just clarifies that. Uh, also, if the president for some reason needs to, for even a temporary period, give over the duties and responsibilities to the vice president. If, for example, the president is undergoing surgery or for whatever reason is unable to fulfill his or her duties. And then lastly, and one of the things that's being talked about quite a bit right now is if the vice president and a majority of cabinet members deem the president for whatever reason to be unfit for duty, they can declare that president unfit. And there is a process for communicating that to leadership of the Congress. And so in the situation that we're dealing with right now, there was quite a bit of pressure from uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, perhaps Minority Leader Schumer encouraging Vice President uh, Pence to actually begin that process of invoking the 25th Amendment to unseat Donald Trump as unfit. Uh, and I think we saw either just in the past 12 hours, 24 hours, the Vice President has put in writing that he has no intention of uh, invoking the 25th Amendment at this time. Has that use of the 25th Amendment been discussed before, the part of it that allows a vice president and the Congress to remove a president who they see as unfit? 
No. So just a, a context for this. The reason, the real impetus for the um, for the 25th Amendment was the uh, the assassination of President Kennedy on November 22nd, large because the big issue that day in, in Parkland Hospital and later back uh, on Air Force One was when did Johnson become president? It wasn't clear whether Johnson became president the moment Kennedy died or after he took the oath of office. So the 25th Amendment was designed to deal with that issue. And the first, there's, there's four sections to the amendment. The, uh, the fourth section is the one that deals with what we're talking about now. And it really, if you read the debates over the 25th Amendment, it really was not designed for removing from office a president who makes unpopular decisions or does things that are really stupid. It's, it's really, it's, the amendment is, deals with death and disability. So the Constitution gives two options for removing a sitting president. And one is the 25th Amendment and the other is impeachment. And in this case, I think impeachment is the constitutionally correct approach to removing Trump from office. Hmm. Professor Gage, you know, this is sort of also taking us in a in a new direction, but I know that you've thought a bit about how we might reform our system going forward such that we don't find ourselves in this unprecedented situation, unprecedented being the word of the day on this history podcast. What are things you think we might do to keep the country more stable in the future to avoid getting to the place that we're in right now? When we're in a crisis moment like this, of course, everyone's very tied to uh, the news cycle, what's going to happen next, especially when the news cycle seems to change every six hours, every 12 hours, um, and when there's such deep uncertainty. But I do think it's also an important moment to look at some of the structural issues in how it is that we do elections that have helped to uh, promote and to get us where we are in this particular situation. Um, those are much more long-term. Those are partly uh, things about you know, kind of perfecting our democracy, uh, which is to say there are large swaths of uh, the electorate who still can't vote because they live uh, in, say, Washington, D.C. Um, so dealing with anomalies like that. Uh, the Electoral College, I think, is looming out there as one of the big questions for the future. Uh, given the 2000 election, the 2016 election, this election, do we want to hold on to the Electoral College as the way in which we choose our presidents or not. And there are a number of ways to think about that. Uh, many of these large-scale changes would have to happen as constitutional amendments, which are very, very difficult to do, particularly in uh, as partisan an environment as we're operating in. But there are other moments in American history. Uh, the Progressive Era was one. The 1970s was another, where people understood that the democratic system was at such a moment of crisis that these kinds of large-scale changes were really necessary and possible. Um, I think another one that could happen uh, perhaps a little bit more easily would be to rethink how it is that we do presidential primaries. You know, I think prior to the 1970s, uh, which is when we began to have primaries in the way that we know them now, these kind of drawn-out but binding primaries in which presidential candidates are chosen uh, through uh, this kind of popular vote process. 
Before that moment, you know, parties had a lot more control over who their candidates were. So it would be very unlikely that a kind of outsider candidate uh, like Trump would come in. Um, there are other reforms that could be made to the primaries. Holding them all on uh, one day, for instance, is something people have uh, suggested. So it's not so heavily weighted toward places like Iowa and New Hampshire. So none of these really are about this exact moment or the personality of Donald Trump or exact what to do in this crisis. But the sense of crisis really is an opportunity to rethink some of these very big structural questions that uh, give us imbalances in our political system um, and that help make it a lot easier for a figure like uh, Trump to come in and wield some of the influence that he does. If I could just add one point to the very good point that uh, Bev just made about the primaries. You know, it's one of the great um, examples of unintended consequences where uh, in 1968, uh, as we know, uh, Hubert Humphrey won the nomination uh, after the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Um, and he did so without running in a single primary. Uh, there were probably, I don't know how many primaries were in 68, probably 18 or 19 primaries. So uh, people got together and they realized what's the best cure for democracy other than more democracy. So it was in response to the 1968 election that both parties opened up the primary system, created what we now know uh, of this system where, where everyone, just about every state has a, a primary or a caucus. And uh, the idea was that that would allow the parties to nominate candidates or more reflective of their point of view. But in reality, what happens is the people who will turn out on the prim on primary day are the ones who are most ideologically committed. And the Republican Party, they are the most conservative, they're the most interest oriented. And the, on the Democratic side, they tend to be more liberal. So what this has done is it's fed along with campaign finance reform and the growing influence of money in politics. It has created the environment that allows candidates like Donald Trump to triumph. And I completely agree with Bev that we need to think structurally about the way we do elections in America, uh, rather than simply punishing Donald Trump and pointing out this isn't just Donald Trump. This is about a political party that allows him to come to power. And these are about the unintended consequences of well-intended uh, reform uh, that allowed this situation to occur. You know, this episode will be coming out the day before uh, Joe Biden's inauguration. So I, I do want to ask, what is the importance of the inauguration as sort of a pageant of democracy, a moment when we'll see this transfer of power um, in front of our eyes? It seems to me that uh, the inauguration is just kind of like this visual confirmation that, you know, our systems are working, that when it is a transfer of one party's uh, leadership to another, that that is just another affirmation of uh, democracy at work. Well, just to add to that point, this American experiment in democracy was unique when, uh, the, when the nation was founded. Um, and and the, and the Constitution itself is is malleable. It's, it's a flexible document. What we have done is created symbols to try to reinforce these concepts, these basic fundamental concepts. The power rests with the people, that our elected representatives are chosen to represent us for particular periods of time. So inaugurations are one of many symbols that are part of this pageantry of democracy that we all participate in. So there's nothing in the Constitution that says that 
departing president has to participate in inauguration of a, a new president. Uh, there's nothing that says we have to have an inauguration, but this is the way we re- we reaffirm our identity, our identity as a democracy, as the leading democracy in the world. So I think it's an important statement for us to reaffirm our identity, and it's also an important symbol for the rest of the world. Great. And I guess my my final question that I that I want to ask, you know, it's so interesting to me the extent to which we've discuss these events as unprecedented and as having no precedent in history. I guess, you know, this is in a way against all of our interest, me as a history podcast host and you all as historians. But is it even wise to look to history in a moment like this to help us deal with the future? To what extent do you think that is helpful? And to what extent do you think it isn't? I think history in a moment like this can actually help us be specific about where it is that we stand. So even if We've never been in quite this situation before. Uh, as we've said, there are certain aspects that are very long-term, that are deeply rooted, that are important to understand. And so if you understand those, they actually help to highlight what really is different about this moment, which is this intersection of electoral politics, a president who has allied himself with you know, with an insurgent and insurrectionist mob uh, attacking the Capitol, right? And it's that fusion of things, any one of those elements, a contested election, right? A president who tries to stir up his base, um, an attack on the Capitol, any one of those we can find precedents for. I think it's the intersection of all of this coming together in the way that it's happening right now. That's the piece that's unprecedented. And I don't think that we can understand that uniqueness actually without uh, having a really deep sense of history. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. I think I speak for me and our listeners when I say that we appreciate all the perspective we can get in a moment like this. So thank you all for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks. We'll be back next week. See you then. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein and McKamey Lynn. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. And our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.